Hello, uh, good morning, and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. I am really, really nervous about doing this episode because we're looking at unfamiliar territory. So we're looking at Second Samuel chapter two, yeah, chapter two, and you know this is not something I've preached on before. I've studied before. But it's today's one of the four passages I'm supposed to be reading today, and I thought, you know, at the very least, I could just kind of like do like a Bible study. This would be like um, the actual real situation, kind of conversation you have if we did this as a Bible study, and we'll try to um, think uh, deeply and faithfully. (laughs) Try not to go too far off the tangent. Um, but in real time, what we see and observe from the text. So we're going to be looking at Second Samuel chapter 2. I think I better pray before I begin. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that speaks to us, that instructs us, that shapes our minds and how we see you and understand you. So Lord, please would you, by your spirit, shape our minds, shape our thoughts, such that we... Um, See what you, what you want us to see, you know, hear your voice speaking to us here in Second Samuel chapter 2. Uh, please help me to say only that which is faithful and helpful and encouraging. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, okay, so on to Second Samuel chapter 2. Um, how shall I do this? Shall I read the whole thing and just comment at the end or uh, shall I come back to it? Uh, I don't know. Um, it's kind of long. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see how it goes. Second Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there. And his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and he lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there the anointed king, sorry, David king, over the house of Judah. Oh, interesting. So... Yeah, they've anointed, they made Jesus, uh, not Jesus. Well, David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. But here David is first installed as king. And that word anointed is where we get the word Christ. And so David is a kind of a picture of God's chosen king. That's what Christ means. And he's first chosen to be king in just one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Let's carry on verse 4. Uh, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So that really helpfully establishes the context. David says that Saul, your master, is dead. And what we have here is a kind of transition. David 
has been hunted by Saul uh, for you know half of the book of 1 Samuel um, because Saul is so threatened by David. You know, Saul knows that he's going to be the next king. And so this transition has not been an easy one. But now Saul is dead. And you know, you remove one king, you would think that the next king can ascend to the throne much easier. But actually it isn't so. It takes this process, this transition, it takes more time for David even to be accepted to be king. And what we see here is David uh, leaning upon God for his promises. You know, David doesn't grasp the throne, you know, even though Saul is dead. You know, David, uh, the first thing he does, verse one, he inquires of God, you know, what should I do? You know, it, it doesn't just occur to him, yes, now I shall be king, even though Saul is dead. You know, yes, now everyone will support me. No, he almost woos the support of the people. He goes to Jabesh Gilead. He speaks to them as people who still hold Saul in their, their hearts. And he says, you know, your, your master is dead. But at least one tribe, Judah, has installed me as king. Allow me to offer you the same protection, the same goodness that you received from Saul. And what we see here is a kind of patience and gentleness in David as he ascends to the throne of king. Very different from Saul, um, but also, you know, surprisingly so. It, it, it might not be obvious to you, but uh, sometimes, you know, you just think of transitions of power in countries or even in your workplace. You know, the moment there is a vacuum, someone fills that vacuum very immediately and almost proclaims themselves as the new boss, the new authority in that space. David um, takes his time with that. He leans upon God. And he woos the people to whom he is seeking to serve as their king. You know, verse six, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Why? Because they showed love to Saul, his enemy. You know, he, he's, he's actually still recognizing Saul as king. And he's recognizing how right it is that others have shown their love for their for the previous king in this way, you know, because it's the people of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. You know, he was very, he was killed in a very dishonorable way. And actually these guys um, bravely and lovingly buried him. And David said, you know, you did such a good thing in honoring the king. Please, please let me honor you. Uh, I'm not sure what their response is. It doesn't quite say here, uh, but at least with the focus on David, the spotlight on him, you know, there's much to be admired here. You know, David is a kind of gentle and patient and trusting king in the midst of this transition, in the midst of this vacuum. Um, sometimes, you know, like uh, back home in my own country, when there was a transition of power, you know, the people who stood out were the ones who didn't quite want to remind everyone they were boss. They don't want, didn't actually maybe even go out a way to kind of like character assassinate the previous boss. But were those who kind of understood that there would be a time, a kind of transition for everyone to kind of get used to the change, even though it was a good, better change, uh, even though it was in some measures, you know, um, you know a, a much more convenient change, you know, people still need time to adjust. And, you know, that's in terms of politics, but even in churches, you know, you have a new Bible study leader, you have a new pastor. Sometimes with all the new expectations, 
you know, even and all the anticipation of all the good things your new leader might bring, you know, we might forget all the good things the previous leader, you know, um, God used uh, to bring goodness and stability and love to the congregation. And we're talking here about Saul. You know, hopefully your previous pastor wasn't like Saul, but even if he was, you know, here's the new pastor, the new David, the new king coming in and just, you know, taking upon that responsibility in such a loving and, you know, patient way. I think, I think there's just so much to learn from this. Okay, okay, let, let's press on. That's just until verse seven. Let's press on to verse eight. But Abner, the son of Nair, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So, so many other tribes compared to just the one tribe, Judah. You know, this Abner, who is a military general, he was actually uh, general to King Saul. What he did was, I think in response to David's installation, he quickly reacted by putting Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul. So taking one of Saul's descendants and making him king instead. And aligning with him all these other tribes. So getting the numbers behind him, getting the kind of um, authentic support from all these other tribes. And making him king. Verse 10, Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So what this highlights is during this transition, there were actually two kings. There was David, who was king over just one tribe. But here was this rival king, a descendant of Saul, who was the rightful king, installed by one of his generals, supported by all these other tribes. It says they're all of Israel. And both were reigning at the same time. And they were like competing kingdoms, you know, and kind of like, you know, I, I guess the challenge here is which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom, which king will you align with? The one that is installed in power or the one that kind of like takes its time, leaning upon God, trying to woo support. And, you know, you might think that, you might think the, 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 the option is obvious, but actually most went with the one with power, the one that everyone else went with, went with Ishbosheth. Interesting name, by the way. Ishbosheth means Ish man, man of shame. Interesting name, yeah. Um, and also interesting guy who installed him. You see, the, the main character in this paragraph, at least, doesn't seem to be this king, Ishbosheth, if you notice that. The person who does all the work in installing this king is this guy named Abner. Abner, who's a commander of Saul's army. And if you remember my last reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David fought against Goliath, if you remember the commander who brings David to meet Saul for the very first time is Abner, <laughs> the commander of Saul's army. Meaning actually Abner kind of knew David. It, it wasn't as if David was this blur in his memory. You know, Abner saw David kill Goliath. Abner was the very first person who introduced David as a young child, meaning he tracked with his progress all along. And I wonder, I wonder if Abner was threatened by David. 
And I wonder, threatened in the same way that Saul was threatened, he knew that God had chosen David to become a king. And therefore, Abner's response is kind of like a human response. No, I don't want this change. No, I want things to stay the same. No, I won't submit to God's change of government in his king. I want to choose my own king. So even though Ishbosheth, yes, he was the son of Saul, it was almost a formality. The only reason Ishbosheth is king is because Abner made him king. Abner got all the support to make him king. And so Abner's actions, it's almost our human tendencies to install our own king. Hmm. What else do we see here? Um, uh, the two places are significant as well. David, you remember he, he says to God in the beginning, where shall I go? You know, he, he's not sure. He, 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 he depends on God and God tells him to go to this place called Hebron. Whereas Abner installs um, the king in Mahanaim. And uh, both have relationships with kingship. You know, Hebron is the land where there is the cave or Machpelah is where uh, um, uh, Abraham, <laughs> Abraham was buried. And, you know, God's promise to Abraham that kings will descend from you. And so David is following down this line. But also Mahanaim uh, is the, the place of... Um, it means two camps. It's the place where Jacob, I think Jacob had the, the vision of, um, of, of God, you know, the stairway to heaven in Mahanaim. And so it's, there's a lot of symbolism in these two places that point forward to how this is a struggle of kingship, God establishing his kingdom, God choosing his king. And the choices of, of these people where they're installing their king, kingship, actually behind it, God is establishing his kingdom. Even through these um, seemingly random choices of places, actually there's meaning behind them. Okay, let's carry on. I think we're only halfway through. Okay, verse 12. Ah, okay, right. Lots of action happening here. So I think um, let, let's try to track with what happens from verse 12. Uh, the heading I have here is called the battle in Gibeon. So verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim, Mahanaim to Gibeon. Verse 13, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So the two generals met together from the two kingdoms, Abner and Joab. And he sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Almost like some kind of game, like some Olympics game. But we'll see it's not really that innocuous. You know, it's much more sinister. Verse 15, Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve for the servants of David. And each caught his opponents by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so that they fell down together. So what happened was twelve from each side, they both grabbed each other's hair, with the other hand took out the sword, and both stabbed each other at the same time. And bleh, <laughs> they all died. <laughs> all of them killed each other, just like that. Therefore, the place was called Helkath Hazurim, Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. Let me see what it means. It means the field of sword edges, the field where they killed each other by the sword. 
and the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of Saul. So it seems to have sparked this, this, this battle, this war, but between brothers. So this is a civil war. They started killing their own brothers. But it started with this very innocent comment, oh, let's, let's just let, instead of us fighting, let's just sit down and watch the young men play. But really what they were doing was killing one another, watching their young sons, their own brothers, kill one another in front of them and then, then got everyone to kind of go into the skirmish. They started fighting. But in the end, um, David's men overpowered the men of Israel. Verse 18, And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as wild as a wild gazelle, so it was really fast in running. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. He was so focused, I, I'm going to kill this guy, and he, he knew he could catch up with him because he was a fast runner, as fast as a gazelle. Then Abner looked behind him in his rear window. He says, you know, said, you know, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Can you imagine there was a, still a distance between them? But you could see him running. Maybe you could see the, the smoke behind him as he's running really fast to chase him. So is that you, Asahel? And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. They were just stunned. And what happened was, you know, uh, how do, how, 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 okay, so uh, Asahel, this fast runner, is catching up to Joab. And Joab said, turn aside. And Asahel, no, 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 I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And what Joab did, he just stuck out the back of his spear. It's not even the front. And Asahel ran <laughs> into the back of the spear and it pierced him in the back and he died. And so almost as if his speed and his own prowess and his own pride and his speed killed him. And he, he, he just stabbed himself in, in, in the front and he died there. And everyone then went there just stunned. What happened here? You know, he, he's dead. He's one of the big three, you know, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. He's, he's dead in trying to pursue uh, Joab. And Joab, you know, uh, not Joab, sorry, uh, um, Abner. Abner seemed to be warned him and said, you know, I don't want to kill you, but you're almost forcing my hand. And it's, it's interesting because here, you know, Abner almost seems like the voice of reason. You know, he's the one who initially we were saying, you know, he's, 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 you know, human pride and installing his own king, not being willing to bow down to God. Is it? But he's here almost speaking reasons. I don't want to kill you. But in the end, this person's pride himself, you know, also killed him. Verse 24, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. So they did the other two brothers, obviously to take revenge. You kill our brother, we're going to kill you. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. 
And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. So they, you know, they, uh, then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So actually, you know, they're about to fight. But then Abner, again, the voice of reason says to Joab, you know, uh, shall we kill each other forever? You know, this is not going to end until all of us die. You know, how long before you, you just say, it's enough, turn aside. And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. So many, many more were killed of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb, <coughs> tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So uh, they went back and buried their dead. They did a tally. Um, in essence, David's men prevailed. You know, um, they lost 20 people, including Asahel. Uh, but um, uh, the people of Benjamin, led by Joab, they lost 360 men. But the point is, uh, they would have lost a lot more if they had not stopped. And also that the people who died, they were their brothers. You know, what we see here is, you know, it's not as if they were fighting the Philistines. They weren't uh, fighting against um, real enemies. They're fighting against one another. And it's, I think, if you just stop and think about it, and you think of situations where, I don't know, you, you get into a disagreement with a brother, or you see fights within a church, there are no winners in such situations. You know, someone might be more right than the, than the other, and there might even be a real issue at stake, but, oh, hi, hi Ezra, <laughs> hello. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah, I'm just doing a reading, uh, a Bible study reading for today, yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, there are just no winners in such situations. And I think the lesson here is that, you know, when especially involves brothers, um, there might be wisdom in sometimes saying, you know, maybe that's enough for today. That there, maybe we can't carry this on to completion because the cost is just the loss of our own people, the hurt of our own people, and there are no winners at the end of the day. Now, the surprising voice of reason, uh, and I say surprising again because Abner, you know, Abner is the guy who is like installing his own king. Abner is the guy who's kind, kind of like rejecting God's king. He is the one who stops the fight. And you might be tempted to think, okay, all right, so Abner is actually a good guy inside. But actually, Abner is um, kind of like, you know, well, how do I put this? He caused the problem in the first place. You see, when, earlier on when he said, let the men just fight one another, it's just play with one another. He knew what he was doing. Essentially, his playful words started this war in the first place. 
You know, he was saying, you know, you and I, we're big generals. We don't need to fight. Let's just let the little guys play it out. And they kill one another in the spot. He knew that would happen. He knew that would spark the war. And his words as a general, you know, as this leader had so much damage. And therefore, in the end, when Joab says to Abner, you know, if you had not said something, we would have killed one another. Actually, what Joab was saying was not just saying, thank you for stopping this fight. Actually, what he was saying is, hey, you were the one who started it in the first place. So now you are the one to end that fight. And you see, actually, the one with the voice of reason is actually Joab. Now, Joab, you know, um, well, again, you know, it, it's, it's very gray situations, but here are two people acknowledging that their leadership styles and their words have profound impact on their followers. And Joab was saying, hey, you know, the things that we say, you know, the careless words, the careless fights, you know, at the end of it, you know, we might not suffer, but the people around us suffer. And I find, I find it really scary, you know, the, the conversations between these two men that can end wars, but can also start them just at an instant as well. And again, you know, you know, the kind of lesson behind this is a kind of carelessness when it comes to just speaking out of turn and just sparking fights, especially amongst God's people, when we lose sight of just how, <laughs> how out of control it can get. And maybe at the end of the day, we, we need to come to a point where we can say, you know, maybe, maybe this has gone too far. We need to take stock of things and we need to call it quits for today. Um, yeah, so that's 2 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, sorry to end on a downer, but again, you know, the way that it begins again is with David and his reliance on God. You know, David, as a contrast to these two generals, the first thing he did was not ascend to the throne. The first thing he did was he went to God and says, what do you want me to do? And if only these two men had done that, um, I think of the many times in which maybe if only I had done that and I realized that the first thing to do whenever an opportunity presents to yourself, you know, an opportunity to maybe say something, do something, react to something, the fr that's an opportunity to pray. There's an opportunity to go to God and say, what do you want me to do? And the result was, you know, a king who is acknowledged by his people, you know, he didn't become king himself, you know, the people of Judah made him king. And a king who woos his enemies, he goes to the people of Jabesh Gilead and says, let me offer you the same protection that your king offered you. And I think that's the kind of contrast, that's the kind of king, that's the kind of reasonableness, that's the kind of gentleness. That when you do have it, you know, it's just so good. But when you don't, and there's that vacuum, what it tends to be filled with is with, is with ego and <laughs> with impatience and with just lots of destruction and hurt. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that um, Jesus, as our King, as our Savior, as our Lord, is so different from our usual kings and lords around us. Um, I pray for myself, actually, um, you know, uh, for any one of us, anyone listening here who has some measure of responsibility to see how good it is it to just hand it all over to Jesus. Uh, when we think our own thoughts and decide our own decisions, there is some power and wisdom there, but it can never measure up to yours. And at the end of the day, you know, it is, um, you know, the kind of king that we have in Jesus that shows us what kind of kings we should be, what kind of leaders we should be submissive, obedient, loving, and patient. So Lord, shape us, help us to submit to you, and help us to thank you for such an amazing king we have in Jesus. Uh, 
pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for joining me. This has been the Daily Bible Reading Show looking at 2 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, it's kind of hazy again. You know, uh, I'm sure that I miss out a lot of stuff, but thank you for uh, sticking with me so far. Take care and God bless.